All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Hot Dogs and Caviar, the uh, podcast where two bored, unemployed chefs, although Nate's actually not that unemployed anymore, but still, you know, I'm keeping it real, uh, discuss, uh, you know, culinary topics, whether they be funny restaurant insider stories, uh, discussions of culinary philosophy, long-winded rants about cookbooks, or just uh, funny things that happen in the kitchen. I am uh, your host, uh, Jesse Sutton. My uh, lovely assistant is Nate Whiting. <laughs> he's, I, pro- I promise he's the talent. I just talk a lot faster. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. And uh, Nate Whiting has a funny story about our uh, friend and co-conspirator and occasional contributor, Tarver Super King King. So Nate Whiting, take it away. <laughs> well, thinking about Super King, we were uh, had him on last week and it was the, the best time. And it reminded me of Super King and Cherie used to throw the best parties. We had such a great time. They would open up their home. They'd cook for us. They'd have plentiful drinks. It was just so great. But plentiful one time... <laughs> plentiful drinks is, by the way, a profound understatement. Yes, that's true. But I'm trying to be nice. It would get It would get a little wild. Yeah, it got a little wild. But anyways, it was fun. We were adults. Nobody drove. It was cool. Um, but uh, <laughs> at one of the parties, uh, we had a, we had a great time. And then the next morning, Tarver came in, and it takes a lot to get him mad. And he was pissed. He's a very happy. He was guy. really mad. He was. <laughs> He's a very happy guy. <laughs> Oh yeah, it takes a lot to get him angry. And he goes, I don't I don't know who did this, man, but uh Sheree is super pissed and I'm really upset. Like we opened up our home, we had a great time. Like, I don't know who would do this, but somebody took all my lawn furniture and threw it in the fire and burned it up. I'm gonna find out who did this. I'm so mad. Sheree is super pissed. And we're all like smirking, like, bro. It was you, dude. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. Yeah, we begged you not to do it. You were hammered. <laughs> and the guy burned all his lawn furniture. <laughs> he's like, no. Yeah, dude, it was you. <laughs> you said the fire was getting puny and we begged you not to do it. <laughs> but you did it anyway. Was that the same? Was that the same party where Jerry was wearing a cow costume, and then like I think on, so. It sounds kept, sounds right. And kept on kind of half-ass hitting on Lydia, and then his girlfriend. Dra- I just have this image of Jerry's big burly girlfriend dragging him out of the party for for like talking to another girl, which I don't think he really had plans to do anything. He was just you know at a party, drunk and chatty, and his girlfriend got all mad. But the mental image of him getting led out of there wearing a cow costume was absolutely priceless. <laughs> like it's I one, think it was, man. It's one thing to get emaciated by your girlfriend. It's another thing to get emaciated by your girlfriend when you're wearing a cow costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. They were uh, fun. It doesn't have much to do with the restaurant business, but uh, well, when restaurant what? folks get together... Uh, they really cut loose. Well, especially, I mean, now we're all old. We're all 40 plus. But back when we were like 30 minus, things got mm-hmm. a little out of hand a lot of the time. And the situation was generally excellent. I have a parallel story about uh, someone uh, forgetting that they committed a crime. 
Um, in cooking school, I had a friend, and we all called him Cockrock. I don't remember his actual name, but if I did, I wouldn't say it. But this guy, Cockrock, he, he went to my cooking school, uh, and he was a big, gross weirdo of the best type. Like, I met him. The day I met him, he was wearing Daisy Dukes and a shirt tied up. This is a big, burly, like, balding 28-year-old man, uh, like, with a beer belly. <laughs> wearing Daisy Dukes and a tied-up shirt, and he was carrying a bag of Franzia, like the shiny silver bag that's inside <laughs> a box of Franzia, like it was an IV and just drinking out of it. Th there wasn't a party. That was just what he was doing. Or like a another time, I, I we were in the dorms, and I was going up to my floor, and I leaned against the wall, and uh, this girl who was my roommate at the time goes, don't lean on the wall. Cockrock spins around in here and pees. So like this is a real person I'm not making up. So anyway, uh, we were having a party at my little tiny apartment in downtown Chicago. We were in Wrigleyville, and uh, we had a bunch of people come over from the school. Like They were like, hey, the party's winding down. What are you guys doing? And we're like, we're having drinks. Come over. And uh, my wife's friend from back home, back in southern Illinois, or central Illinois. I mean, when you're in Chicago, everything is southern Illinois. Uh, but uh, her little friend came over, and we all drank, and I ended up, you know, shall we say, resting my eyes and not really remembering the end of the night. Cause you know, there's, there's, you can count on one hand, the number of parties from my twenties that I remember the end of, but you know, there were a bunch of people there. Cockrock was there. And then we all woke up the next morning and we were like, and that was it. And then my wife got the photos developed from the party. And there, the photos were of her little friend passed out cold on the couch. And in one of them, Cockrock has his bare ass pressed almost up directly against her face. And in the other one, he's a very hairy guy. And he was basically like, like leaning forward and pushing his treasure trail into her face. Uh, <laughs> is it? And then, you know, he, he went home like a gentleman. And uh, so my wife is super pissed at me. And she's yelling at me like, I can't believe you do this. I can't believe you take advantage of her like that. And I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, no, how could you? How could you? She was in a guest at our house and she trusted you. And like, I, I the whole time I'm getting yelled at for like three days, I got yelled at. And I was just like, I don't remember doing this. That doesn't mean I didn't do it. It just means I don't remember doing it. So finally, after three days, I was like, look, here's the thing. I don't remember doing this at all. The last thing I remember is having drinks on the couch and then I blacked out. I think I passed out. I'm pretty sure I was asleep. I didn't do this. I don't know who did, but I didn't. And she just goes, I took the pictures. <laughs> like basically me drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, there's no way I did that. You, I didn't say you did that, but then she copped to it and she realized that she took the pictures. And all of a sudden, it went, but it, she's a complete hypocrite because it went from, I'm so mad at you, I'm so mad at you, how could you, to this is totally funny. Like, oh, that's a hell of a pivot. Can I do that? Like, can oh, I be like, no, oh. No, you cannot. <laughs> like, oh, this <laughs> terrible drunk crime that I committed, but all of a sudden, woo, ha -ha, hilarious riot. Uh, like, when I want to do that, it takes 20 years. For her, it took two seconds. It was uh, uh, the hypocrisy of woman. Man, that was some... <laughs> I'll probably need to put the explicit tag on this one just because the guy's nickname was Cockrock.
Oh, uh, I say, I, I say I we just let it fly. I should explain that the reason this guy's name nickname was Cockrock is that he had a cubic zirconia stud in his wiener. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> He's just the kind of person that would just do something like that. He was just a, a complete. He would do it, but not really want to pony up for a real diamond. Right, exactly. He was the kind of guy who would definitely stick a sharp thing through his penis, but definitely not spend any money on it. <laughs> That's a very specific window, and people that yes. live in that window, you really only meet in restaurants or at cooking school. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my God. One of these days, we need to talk about, like, everybody talks about, like, um, how wild college is. They, like, they have nothing on restaurants. Nothing. 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 I, I mean, even, I, they don't even know. That's the minor leagues, dude. The, the thing is, college kids are just like everybody else. They're weekenders. Restaurant mm-hmm. life is seven day life. It's uh, it's all the time party. Oh and yeah. Ultimately, and we could we could probably spend an entire episode talking about the destructive after effects of this for the people who were never able to get out of the party, because those it's people habitual man. Those it's those bad. people are real. But at least at least you and I have like wives and lives and have able been able to like some people can't get out and that is a serious problem and i'm not going to make light of that but, no no uh, not, at all, not at all but having said that i've lost friends and mentors to it and some yeah. people just can't get out but having said that and with a somber acknowledgement of the cost that it has on lives man i have gotten up to some excellent nonsense in my life <laughs> 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 Oh man! <laughs> All right. Well, good uh, stuff. I, I feel like that was a fine, funny story, and that that will uh, in no way lead me into the topic. But uh, we're just going to go ahead and uh, stay the course anyway. Uh, Nate and I have decided today to talk about this is a very important subgenre of American cuisine, and the thing is, not all Americans recognize it as a subgenre of American cuisine. It is an important subgenre of American cuisine that is kind of hiding in plain sight as uh, masquerading as a foreign cuisine. And that cuisine that we are going to discuss is Italian-American cuisine. Oh, hiding in plain sight, that is a perfect example of it. Like the lines have been really blurred over here in America and people don't even realize the differences and the nuances. Yeah, good call, man. I mean, a plurality of Americans think that Italian-American cuisine is Italian cuisine. And this, we are here to tell you, is not the case. <laughs> no, sir. But the, the, there are so many Italian-Americans, and they have definitely made their mark on American cuisine. I mean, just think about pizza. What's more American than pizza? Answer, right. nothing. There is nothing more American than pizza. Not even barbecue. I think pizza has taken over everything. I mean, you can, I mean, it's worth noting that you can get a barbecue pizza. <laughs> you totally can the fact that you can walk into a bagel place and get a pizza bagel is a sure sign that pizza has crossed the line and is officially all the way american cuisine and the thing is there's so much more italian american cuisine that is bountiful and beautiful and fake and cheesy and awesome and Americans don't even recognize it when they're looking at it. So we're here to take a quick look at Italian-American cuisine. This is a topic that is near and dear to both of us. Uh, in uh, Nate's case, Nate is actually, I don't want any of you to judge him unduly, but Nate's an Italian-American. Uh, 
Like he's got a tracksuit and a gold chain and everything. Like <laughs> I, I myself, I do not suffer from this racial handicap, but uh, I do have several cousins that are Italian Americans. My uh, my dad's brother married a, a, an Italian American woman, so I have Italian American cousins. I have Italian American. They have Italian American kids, and uh, I tell you what, they may be a little noisy, but dinner at their house is awesome. <laughs> I also, I also had a former Italian American roommate, uh, and I so I sort of learned like he would go home to his family in Chicago, and he would come back with like a flat of canned tomatoes and ten pounds of spaghetti and a gallon of olive oil, and I would be like, "You shouldn't have spent that much money." And he goes, "I didn't spend any money." My mom says we're not eating. We were definitely eating. <laughs> I mean, we were eating beer, <laughs> but we were all we were all overweight because we were just crushing beers. 30, like, you know, hey, let's open a thirty pack. When it's done, we'll go get another one. But uh, this guy's mom was convinced that we were uh, insufficiently nourished, so she would send yeah. him home with like pounds and pounds of food. So both Nate and I have Italian Americans in our lives. Nate is an Italian American in my life, and we are here to discuss the beautiful effects of that particularly amazing. Uh, American cuisine. Absolutely. That reminds me of the old joke, the old Italian American joke. Once you once you eat it, you're not hungry again for three days. That's the only problem. <laughs> three days later, you're hungry again. <laughs> that is that is definitely how Italian American food works. Uh, it's it's the yeah. pasta it's the pasta red sauce cuisine. I mean, it like there are so many like if you ask an average American what an Italian dish is, everything they tell you is going to be strictly Italian American. The very notion of pasta as an entree is an Italian American thing. That's how Absolutely. ingrained Italian American cuisine is in the uh, in the US. Well, what I what I really zero it down into when I like really get granular about it and I think about Italian American cuisine, the word that keeps coming to mind is abundance. Okay? Because a lot of Italian food and a lot of their ancestors and their family came from it's from poverty. And when they get here, there is meat and pasta and so much abundance to them and they just can't resist it. Absolutely. It, I mean, I it think, just grew and grew and grew. I think abundance is a feature of all American cuisines. But yes, absolutely. Ab- not ab- that I blame them. No, it's not just at all. How, it's just how it is over I, here. There are so many different foreign uh, cultures that came to this country after the deprivations. World War One plus World War Two equals Europe is starving. Absolutely. Yes. Like world, the world wars had a huge impact on American cuisine. So uh, as a result, people come here and the 50s were boom time. There was plenty of money to be made. And the thing that America has uh, over most other nations is just agrarian landscape everywhere. Food is cheap here because it comes from here. Like people think of the U.S. as this urban nation, but it's really a a nation of farms. We have our cities, but 90% of the, 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 the map is is uh, farmland so like we produce grain in huge amounts we produce meat in maybe the hugest amounts it's ever been produced there's so much there's so much product here so people from war-torn europe came here and they were like oh i have a blue-collar job working at a factory but i can feed my family like my family could never feed me so uh as a result these uh, this this entire culture grew out of 
a culture of war-torn poverty. And as a result, things like lasagna or huge piles of spaghetti and meatballs came to exist. And you know what? They're awesome. Yeah, it's not to say it isn't awesome, but this like mutation is something entirely different. And it's not even the actual immigrants who came over here first or were the first boots on the ground. It's largely the ch their children and their yeah. children's children that grew in abundance and more and more and more and more. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. I have, a, I have an anecdote to illustrate uh, the nature of being a first generation Italian American. And this is actually, if you read the review of Italian American Cuisine by John Mariani that I uh, put on the blog, uh, that's Hot Dogs and Caviar, topblogspot.com, check it out. Excellent plug. Yeah, no, you know, a, 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 B, C, always be closing. My old roommate, uh, I, I was reading an Italian American cookbook, so I, I let him know just because I thought he'd think it was interesting. And the, the entire concept of Italian American cuisine was kind of alien to him. He had never thought about it. He grew up, his dad's from Rome. His mom's German, but she, you know, she married his dad. His, his, he, he's like a first, he's a first generation American. Both of his parents have foreign accents. He was like, Italian American cuisine, what does that even mean? Hot dog Vesuvio? And I was like, hot dog Vesuvio. <laughs> so before I responded, I looked it up. I was like, what's Vesuvio? Well, there's a dish called chicken Vesuvio. And it's a Chicago mm -hmm. Italian American dish. And it's roasted chicken in like white wine gravy with garlic and oregano with peas and potatoes. That's, and the thing is, that's not, it's not not Italian. I mean, it's, it's, it was definitely conceived of at an Italian restaurant in Chicago. So I, I reached back out to him and was like, hey man, uh, I had to look it up. Uh, Vesuvio is already Italian American. Like his, his idea, his spin was hot dog Vesuvio, but Chicken Vesuvio is already an Italian-American dish. Uh, and uh, he, his mind was a little blown. He had never thought of that as a non-traditional Italian dish because he grew up in Chicago. He grew up Chicago Italian. All of his family thought of that as just a local dish. Uh, like, but the thing is, like, the, the, way, the way that Europeans think of their food is local. In his mind, that was Italian because he'd seen Italians make it. So it was very interesting to, to, to realize that he had no idea that was an American invention. And he's a first generation American. That is the power of generationality in cuisine in America. It, you know, it, it's entirely possible to grow up and just, you know, your parents wouldn't say, hey, this is an American dish. This is an Italian dish. They'd be like, hey, this right. is dinner. Yep, so exactly. And that reminds me of a good example. Like growing up in my household and my family, like it wasn't Italian sausage. It was just sausage. But you yeah. go to Italy, there's no such thing as Italian sausage. You, there's all these different kinds. It's like, it's an American invention. It's an Americanized thing. But you know what I mean? It's like huh. totally adapted and mutated into a whole mindset, a whole culture. It's crazy, man. That's funny because I know a lot of different Italian sausages. Yeah. But I, I never thought about the fact that Italian sausage, what would you call that in Italy? I mean, does that... I mean, really, Italian sausage yeah. is a pretty basic formula. Ground pork, garlic, pepper, fennel, salt, right? That's pretty yeah, much it. maybe. And to make it hot, maybe some chili flakes. Right. Maybe if it's hot Italian, then add some chili. <laughs> does that exist in Italy? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it does, but it's like, I feel like that's an Italian-American kind of like amalgamation of like two, I don't know. Uh, by the way, uh, for those following along at home, uh, Nate is absolutely talking with his hands right now. 
<laughs> Nate, Nate, I find that stereotype offensive. Well, that that's how you shut a uh, shut an Italian up is tie their hands behind their back. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating because I still, I mean, I cook with Italian sausage all the time. Yeah, it's uh, just sausage in my house and where we're from. And the thing is, there's really not a whole lot different. Like, really, if you took just basic American breakfast sausage and you want to make it Italian sausage, you just add fennel seed. Yeah, really. That's, 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 about the, it. that's like you take Bob Evans breakfast sausage and you add fennel seed, you got Italian sausage. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Although here's a here's a here's a hint. Have you ever tried making Italian sausage and leaving the fennel out, replacing it with caraway? No, that'd be good. It sounds like a buffalo thing. It's more <laughs> believe it or not, like. believe it or not, caraway exists outside of Buffalo, Nate. <clears throat> no. It's, it's sad but true. Uh, no, if you if you make like, the hell you say, it's a little more mild. Uh, the fennel the fennel really has a way of taking over, whereas the caraway has a way of sort of taking a step back and playing with the other flavors. It's very I love stuff. caraway. It's such an underrated ingredient. It really is. It's it's a uh, it's it's a terrific little uh, it's terrific. Remember little the candied caraway seeds? Those are so good. Yeah, I had a bunch of those. Where did, is that something Tarver brought back from the fat duck? Possibly. I, I don't feel, remember where he picked that little treasure up, but they're so good. I can't remember how he made them, but it was something like tossing them while heating the pan. It's all 10x. You just do it. It started in a cold pan and you slowly add 10x. And when it dissolves, you add a little more and then a little more until it doesn't dissolve anymore. And then you just pull it. I actually think so that good. would that would probably be pretty good with fennel seed, too. Oh, we've done those. Oh, yeah. Sesame, caraway, all kinds of seeds. But the mm. caraway are especially awesome. That's a, yeah, they were, I mean, it's it's great because caraway has a flavor that's not exactly sweet and not exactly savory. It goes, it goes all ways. We used to do it with the corned beef tongue as a oh, garnish. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's where I remember it from. Among, among many other things too, but I remember it with that corned beef tongue. That was a fantastic dish. I remember that. All right, uh, Mr. Dog, uh, I would like at this point, since we're talking about Italian-American cuisine, why don't you take us through a dish of yours, not necessarily favorite, because I know it's hard to pick favorites, uh, but why don't you take us through a dish or two that really illustrate what Italian-American cuisine is all about to you? Well, my mind immediately goes to uh, to meatballs. Meatballs, they're, it's poverty food. It's from impoverished areas and naples and southern italy and to me the key to a good meatball is not too much meat and when italian americans came here they have this abundance of meat and they make more meat and less breadcrumbs less fillers less bread um, i think that's like one of the telltale signs of the abundance and the mindset like italians they don't they don't eat like that like they don't eat spaghetti and meatballs they don't eat like huge bowls of pasta they'll have a little bit of pasta and a little bit of rice and they'll start with some vegetables some mani pasta some charcuterie maybe a little pasta and then like a big piece of protein and some vegetables and people wouldn't go out to dinner and have a big bowl of meatballs and spaghetti it's just not and not that it's wrong it's just totally different it's like a totally like different kind of mutation like well i think kind that of its own thing and it's kind of cool I think that part of what that shows is that in in Italy, you don't often see large amounts of protein on the same plate as pasta. 
Right. Exactly. Pasta is about the pasta. The rice is about the rice. If you want a meatball, you get a bowl of meatballs, you know? And I have gotten a bowl of meatballs. Uh, back when you were chefing Juliet, I would come in and get your meatballs relatively frequently. <laughs> they just came with some bread. Yeah, that's it. And those meatballs were the bomb. <laughs> yeah, those were good, man. But I think you called it. The, the secret of meatballs is meatball is basically a sphere of meatloaf. And yep. the key to a good ground meat loaf or ball is the panade. You've got to have the bread in there. Basically, the way the, the way to make a good meatball or a good meatloaf is you add egg until it's too wet to hold together, and then you add breadcrumbs back until it'll hold together again, right? Yep, basically. And so, but uh, this is this is the kind of like if you think about think about a if you just made a meatball with no filler, you would have a three inch sphere of well done hamburger, right? Or well it's done just too much. It's well too much of an pork. abundance. Yeah. I mean, another really good trick too in the panade is adding ricotta to it. Ooh, um, that really helps keep it nice and moist and succulent and juicy. I have but never seen that. Move. It goes all to the abundance. Like the pizzas got bigger, the portions got bigger, the spaghetti and the pasta became entrees in their own right. Like they got more saucier, they got more heavier and richer. There was more cheese on top, more cheese in the layers. You know. I mean, the whole the whole thought of uh, the pizzas got bigger. That's a whole topic all by itself, because right. and this is where I'm going to uh, let everyone know that we are a house divided. Uh, Nate's a New York guy. <laughs> I'm from Chicago. But it's worth noting that Chicago and New York both have their own individual styles of making the pizza too big. Like, yeah, that is like a slice of New York pizza is easily the size of a Neapolitan pizza. Whereas a slice of yeah. Chicago style pizza is the size of three Neapolitan pizzas. <laughs> but the difference is that the New York style pizza is broad and flat. Like in New York, you get the 24 inch pizza. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's insane. Well, yeah, it's completely insane. But you get a slice that won't even fit on the paper plate they give you. Like you get a paper plate and it's got the two corners of the crust coming off one side. It's got the tip coming off another. You have to fold the thing in half so it has structural integrity so you can even eat it at all. Meanwhile, in Chicago, you've got the deep dish pizza, which is a solid two and a half inches thick and weighs, when I first got to cooking school in Chicago, my roommate was from Tennessee. I was from downstate Illinois. And he's like, hey, you want to go halves on a pie? I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go halves on a pie. Uh, so we ordered a pizza, like a large. And she's like, that'll be $37. And I thought, oh, man. Chicago really is expensive. Like everyone was telling me it's going to be so much more expensive when you go there. I'm like a large pizza is 37 bucks. That's crazy. And then she handed me the box and the thing weighed like four pounds. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. A large pizza right. here, a large pizza when I was growing up is enough to feed two 20 year old guys. No problem. Large pie, gone, gone. Yep. A large mm -hmm. Chicago style pizza is enough to feed six 20 year old guys we got uh -huh. the thing and we were just like oh my god this, we're gonna die and we we made a solid crack at it we each ate two slices so we each ate a quarter of the pizza and we were like done for ate too much sick and meanwhile this this pizza's just sitting in our dorm fridge laughing at us like <laughs> you thought you could hang so you know uh, yeah. both new york and chicago have developed their own individual ways of of overabundance when it comes to pizza 
Absolutely. It's more garlic, more wine, more protein. And why? Because they could. Yeah. And they couldn't help themselves. And you know what? I got it. I'm going to use it. Well, and that's know, cool. I Actually, I have a thought about the garlic thing. Because I don't know. Yes, it's more garlic. It's definitely more garlic. Like in Italian recipes, you almost never see chopped garlic added to anything. They'll throw in a cup. They'll throw in a couple of whole cloves in the beginning, and then perfume the oil, and then pull the cloves out, and then put all the other aromatics in. They don't well, eat a ton of garlic, but I think that in 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 America, America came out of like American culture grew initially out of English culture, and the English don't really like garlic. They make fun of the French and the Italians for being garlic eaters. So as a result, uh, it, like garlic had the, the 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 stink of low class on it, kind of the way that a lot of like middle Americans think of Mexican food now. Like, oh, I can't eat Mexican, you know, like my stomach's kind of sour. Like, yeah, you know what? If you went to act, have actual Mexican food, like real authentic Mexican food, you'd realize it wasn't all just cheese and chili peppers. But the the American stereotype of Mexican food is a gut bomb. I feel like Italian American uh, Italian cuisine had that 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 same stereotype in the fifties. So these people would would avoid the garlic. So at that point, the Italians embraced the garlic as a cultural thing. And they're like, yeah, I'm a garlic eater. I mean, if you tell an Italian that he's bad for liking the food he likes, the first thing he'll do is punch you. And the second thing he'll do is make more of that food where mm -hmm. you can see him proud as anything. So I think that mm -hmm. uh, the, the Italians were like, yeah, we're, we're garlic eaters. Hell yeah, we're garlic eaters. And they started just throwing more and more and more in. I think that's where that came from. That's my theory. Anyway, I'm not an anthropologist. I mean, that's a good that's a good theory, man. I really don't think we should understate the importance of World War One and especially World War Two as well. Like when those soldiers came back from being stationed in Naples and Sicily and stuff like they fell in love with the food and they brought that back and they brought back their love for it and their desire for it. And a lot of them helped spread it and even open their own establishments and things like that, like. World War II was like a touchstone for a lot of Italian-American food. It was the genesis of pizza. It really was. It was the beginning of pasta. Well, not so much just World War uh, II. There, was, there was pizzerias here, but it wasn't, it wasn't the phenomenon it was until probably 10 or 20 years after the right. war. Because hundreds of thousands of GIs were like, oh, pizza, this is good. I like this. And pizza is mm -hmm. one of those things that, like, you know, no matter what kind of shortage you're going through, as long as you have wheat flour, you can make a pizza of some kind. And like, and like all pizzas and porno, they're all pretty good. <laughs> right. Bad, bad pizza, like bad porn, it's still 100% effective. It's good stuff. <laughs> it's still pretty good. Well, what, exactly. What, when I think about Italian-American cuisine, the dish that my mind runs to most immediately is the Italian beef sandwich. Okay. And this is, it turns out it's a Chicago thing. I never knew that. Like I moved to Illinois when I was, I don't know, 12, 11. And then, you know, I, when I was in high school, I ate fast food because that's what high school kids eat. Go to McDonald's, get a hamburger. But after that, immediately after high school, well, not immediately, I tried to go to college, but after that didn't work out, I got jobs in restaurants. And we were two and a half hours south of Chicago, but we were close enough. So we, every, every place I worked that had an Italian beef sandwich. And Italian beef is like sliced roast beef served wet, like out of like tonged out of the broth that it came in. 
And the broth was flavored with like fake Italian herbs and pepperoncini peppers and garlic served on a hoagie roll with Jardinera pepper mix. And if you've, or, uh, if you've never had Jardinera, it's like a pickled pepper salad with peppers and carrots and cauliflower, onion. I think it's pretty much it. Uh, but all tossed yeah, together, tossed together in a spicy pickle. And uh, sometimes people put cheese on it. I have my own opinions on the cheese. I feel like Italian beef is not where cheese goes. But me and my war with cheese is a subject for an entire different podcast. And let me let me clarify, though, that I don't hate cheese. I just appreciate things that are often paired with cheese when they're not. So that's, an, that's a different topic, my, my whole thing. Dude, I cheese. totally agree with that. My whole thing with cheese. We'll talk about that at another time. Yeah, that is another. We should do it. We should do a cheese cast. We should just do a like a how to buy, how to eat cheese, and uh, then wh- where to put cheese and where not to put cheese, and that'll be a fun one. Oh my god, we'll go on for hours. But at any rate, uh, so that's an Italian beef sandwich, and so I came up as a cook in downstate Illinois. Then I moved to Chicago, and they're everywhere, and everyone has them. And then I moved to New Orleans, and I didn't think about Italian beef for a while. I lived in New Orleans for two years, and during that time, I wasn't interested in. Like, New Orleans doesn't have a lot of local cuisine that's not New Orleanian. There are a couple of ethnicities that, that have a strong presence there. There's a lot of Vietnamese. There's a lot of Lebanese. So there's a certain amount of that going on. But for the most part, New Orleans serves New Orleans food. It's its own thing. So I didn't think about Italian beef for a couple of years. And then I came to Charleston, and I was working at the Woodlands, and we were talking about, uh, you know, sandwiches. And I said, hey, guys, where can I get a good Italian beef? And Nate, noted Italian-American Nate Whiting, looks at me and goes, Italian beef what? And I was like, Italian beef sandwich. <laughs> and he goes, I don't really know what you're talking about. And I, my mind was blown. And that's how I learned yeah. that an Italian beef is a Chicago thing. I had yep. no idea. I had no idea. <laughs> Basically, yeah, I had, never, I had never heard of it. No, it's a Chicago thing. The way you make an Italian beef is you take a piece of like really lean roasting beef, like round, like a, like a piece of inside round or eye of round or top round, and you sear it. And then you make a broth featuring water and um, I'm just going to go ahead and say it beef base, like a, like a meaty, a meaty beef jus based on beef base. And then uh, you traditionally you put an Italian seasoning, although I have my own thoughts about that. We'll talk about that later. Pepperoncini peppers and garlic. And then you throw it in a low oven or an alto sham for a long, slow cook until it's ready to fall apart. Then there are some schools of thought that say that you should leave it firm enough to slice and put it on the slicer i disagree i think the perfect italian beef is made when it comes out you just bust it up with tongs and mm-hmm. so it, it like so it's really one with the gravy and then you put it into a uh it, you put it into a bun some places serve a little cup of jus on the side they call it au jus but that's not grammatically correct it's jus au jus, au jus means with juice so if you say hey let me get a cup of au jus you're officially an idiot so anyway you you load your your jus, your, your your beef onto your sandwich and the thing is, if you've done it right, you don't need the cup of jus. If you've done it right, then the, the beef brings enough jus with it to completely ruin the bread. But the idea is the bread's already ruined. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that I'm talking about a sandwich that has lost structural integrity like it's a good thing, but that's just how it's done. And uh, then you, you take it and you put your little pickle pepper mix on top, and then you crush it. And the best way to crush it is out of a paper tray that's about chest high. So you might not have a piece of furniture in your house that's ideal for this. So you might have to like take a knee around the table. Uh, it, a proper Italian, a properly made Italian beef sandwich cannot actually be picked up. But if you eat it with a fork, you're a communist. Al's Italian, uh, Al's Italian beef, uh, Al's famous. 
uh, in Chicago actually has a counter that runs the entire circumference of the restaurant that's chest high. So that's it's what it's for. Like you put your beef sandwich there and then you can just easily like like get it into your mouth, you know, without, you know, getting, you know, jus and greasy bits of beef crap all over yourself. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're kind of a challenge. If they're properly made, they're kind of a challenge to eat without one of those, unless you wear a bib. And I, I, w- I would rather wear a bib and suffer the indignity of being a person wearing a bib in public than eat an Italian beef with a fork. That's just me. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would rather eat a, yeah, I'd rather wear a bib than like eat a candy bar with a knife and fork or some shit like that. Well, how would you feel about someone eating a piece of New York pizza with a knife and a fork? Commie bastard. They are not to be trusted. They are to be put on a terrorist watch list. They're almost certainly an alien. They're like, aliens. They need to be watched by the FBI. <laughs> like they're, they're body, they're, they're body snatchers. And they're here to, I don't know, do whatever it is. I don't know why an alien would want to take over this world, but if they wanted to, uh, and they wanted to infiltrate, that's going to be how we find them is if they eat pizza with a knife and fork, especially New York pizza. I, that would be a good way to find them for sure. But uh, I'm pretty sure they don't want anything to do with us. <laughs> right. Any alien that's managed to do space travel takes a look at us and it's like, look at those guys. I mean, maybe the alien might like be like, hey, they, they got pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as humans, you know, we've, we've got music, we've got cinema, we've got pro wrestling, we've got cuisine. There are reasons to like, you know, come in and assimilate our culture. But it, honestly, you'd never want to conquer us. We'll just rot your society from the inside out. They'd take a bunch of Americans <laughs> as slaves and the next thing you know, all the aliens would be like, no, I don't want to work. I don't want to wear a mask. I have a breathing problem. Well, that is a uh, that's a good look at a couple of uh, iconic Italian American dishes: pizza balza and uh, you know uh, the great Italian beef sandwich. Um, Nate, why don't you uh, just take us in a different direction? Uh, give us another thought on Italian American cuisine. I was just thinking about how crazy things can evolve and like the way cuisine evolves um, and based on a, on a personal story, like when my great grandmother, my mother's grandparents got here from Sicily, when she got here, she did not like, my great grandmother did not like the tomatoes that she could get. They said they weren't as good. They're not sweet. They don't taste good. So she started using tomato paste in her tomato sauce, like almost all paste because that had the right amount of flavor and robustness that she and her parents and her family used. Now, that's a derivative of how like my family makes the sauce or gravy, as a lot of people call it. But um, <laughs> but uh, I'd like to think like do to the global economy now, like the way things are more readily available. Like I'd like to think that maybe she could get some of the tomatoes that she grew up with and like we're familiar with, like they are available now. Um, I don't know. It just really got me thinking. Um, well, I think that there's, there's definitely a through the ingredients. line. There's definitely a through line between what your grandmother thought and what we thought. If you go back to our first episode, we we're talking about hamburgers. And now we talk about the fresh tomatoes always suck. Yeah. Like there's, there's something to that. If you're used to Europe where most produce is grown locally, or at least a lot of produce is grown locally, or at least it was, uh, you know, I mean, like when I was in France, the stone fruits were just better. They were just better. 
And the reason is because they like they would just take the stone fruits from the field and put them on a truck and drive them two hours to the market. Even if you're in the city, it's not that far. Whereas in America, things have to cross state lines. They have like it was a railroad thing. Things had to go miles and miles and miles. So all of a sudden, once railroads hit, which was what mid to late 1800s, like once railroads hit, it was all about making tomatoes so they could travel. And right. so if you got to if, if a European who was used to locally grown tomatoes got to America and found out that our tomatoes are designed to be able to travel by rail, you would absolutely hate them. And canned tomatoes would be the king. And the thing is, you look you look at now, anytime you're making a pasta sauce or a pizza sauce, canned tomatoes are the industry standard. Always use canned tomatoes. Canned tomatoes are a lot better than fresh. A oh, lot yeah. better than fresh. It, yep. And like just the vastness of America. America is huge. Italy is probably smaller than California. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, so, you know, it's crazy to think like that. Like my great grandparents, like they always had a huge garden and they'd grow it themselves. They made their own salami. They made their own wine. Like my great grandfather would sit at the kitchen table. My mother would tell me, sit at the kitchen table with a shotgun and he'd see a pheasant fly through and he'd aim it out the window and shoot it like right there and then they'd have pheasant the next night it's like beverly like and this was normal like they hunted they gathered they farmed it's like and it's like beverly hillbillies except everybody's kind of yeah paid. i know right it's freaking <laughs> crazy but it's also kind of cool but it's super you know, cool as as the as the generations get further and further removed and something happens over that ocean and you just get more and more lax and comfortable in america and the abundance like you don't have to hunt for your food you don't have to do anything anymore you just go to the store and that just speaks to the more of how people are disconnected and used to the abundance like you get complacent man it's crazy i'll tell you what though like yes there is a certain amount of complacency a certain amount of cultural dilution that's come with uh, with America. And I mean, that's that's what we do. We take everybody and we make them into suburbanites. Uh, but right. I'll tell you what, uh, just in my observation, the Italian-American spirit is very much, the Italian spirit is very much alive and well in America, in Italian-Americans. Yes. Like, I remember when I first went to cooking school, uh, my roommate and I shared a dorm suite with these two girls. Uh, it was like they had co-ed, it was a co-ed floor, it was weird. Uh, so one of the girls, her name was Rosie and she, she was a, an 18 year old girl from Chicago in 2001 called Rosie, you know, a name that no one gets. That's such an old school name. And Rosie was full on Italian. And she was like, her way of making friends with us was, Hey, let's go to my mom's for dinner on Sunday. And I was not prepared for my first actual dinner sitting in an Italian American home. They, the, the woman was so generous so aggressively generous it was like to start it was just like a big plate of sliced ham and then after that was pasta with ragu until you couldn't possibly eat anymore and then she was aggressively like no you need to have more you need to have more you need to have more and then after that done after that was done when you were like okay i I will have a little bit more i'm gonna die but i'm gonna have a little bit more and you have a few more bites to be polite and then she brings out this huge plate of melon and she's like, ah, we're going to have cantaloupe. And you're like, oh, my God, uh, I already ate too much pasta. But OK, lady, <laughs> you know, that 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 spirit of of uh, cultural generosity of sharing the hearth, that doesn't that doesn't always exist in, you know, waspy, waspy middle America. Right. 
but right. very much an Italian thing. Or my, my other anecdote is that my old roommate, his dad gave him a, a special credit card. I think I'm remembering this right with like a special allowance just for taking his friends out to dinner every couple of weeks. And his explanation of this was they treat you right. I treat them right. And <laughs> it's just this, this, uh, this cultural, this, the spirit of generosity, the spirit of food as connection uh, is, is very much alive and well. So while they're like, uh, just experientially from the outside looking in, uh, because the reason I note this is because in most American cultures, I haven't seen this. I saw this right. in Italians and the only other culture I've ever seen this in is Brazilians. I had a couple of friends that were Brazilians as kids and they were, that, that, they were very much of the same gonna, yeah. yeah, that's what I was gonna bring up. Like Italian Americans and Italians, like the generosity and the family first and looking out for their own and each other, like that's huge. And it's also huge in like Mexico and the Mexicans and the South American cultures, like mm -hmm. family first, just hardworking family feasts. Like it's, it's, it's a lot is lost on a lot of waspy people for sure, man. I mean, when it comes right down to it, I think Catholics know how to eat. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the religion. <laughs> it's it it's just that I don't know why. I mean, in, in Catholic, yeah. like every, every every Catholic culture that I've come across, especially like as far as like non Latino, non Italian uh, Catholics, uh, Polish people are very into sharing their food too. You just Irish you, too. It's it's just you, you you like Catholic people are extremely generous and extremely into welcoming everybody in. It's like come join the club. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. as a non I never thought of it like that but that's it, true and this is just as a as a, as a non-religious guy that stated a few catholic girls uh this is what I've, this is what i found is that uh you know there's there are certain parts of their culture that are a little repressive but they really do appreciate a feast they really do appreciate a party in a way that my own sort of germanic guilt-ridden relatives really never were able to wrap their mind around <laughs> Yeah, Catholics and feasts go hand in hand, man. And it's when you look at the when you look at hey, the culture, when you look at the cultures around the earth that are traditionally Catholic, you really get some great, great food. And the Italians mm. are the shining example, but man, Mexicans, they're right up there. Yeah, they can cook <laughs> too, man. All right, well, uh, let's uh, let's shift gears a bit because we are starting to run short on time. We have we have a little bit of time left, but uh, I, I would like to touch on let's touch on a few of the. A few of the crimes committed on American cuisine in the name of Italian American cooking. All right. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like let's talk about some things that are Italian American. Like cheese on everything. Italian American with a capital A. Let's talk about, you know, things that are less Italian and more American. Things that have been done. To Olive American. Garden. Olive Garden. <laughs> That's a great example. And my, my microcosm of the evil of Olive Garden, I have two. The first is the word Rolatini. The word yeah, they're made up words. The word Rolatini. Oh my God, that was driving me crazy. The word Rolatini enrages me, but the thing that really pisses me off, oh my God, the thing that really, really, really just absolutely enrages me is I went on the internet trying to find a source to say that Rolatini was a made up word, and I couldn't. I couldn't find <laughs> one. That made my blood boil so much worse. First off, the, the term is involtini. If you want to yes. take a thing, a, you want to take a flat thing and roll other stuff in it, 
Mm-hmm. Italian cuisine has a word. It's involtini. I don't know what it means yeah. literally. Uh, usually it's a piece of eggplant. And usually the stuff that's inside it is a saute of eggplant and other vegetables like a caponata or something like that. Right. And that's, that's what an involtini is. But if you take the eggplant and replace it with a chicken breast and then your olive garden, you call it a rollatini, I guess because you want me to release bees into your home. So uh, <laughs> hot dogs and caviar at blackspot.com. I'm looking for donors. I'm going to do a GoFundMe, a fund to buy me the means to release bees into the home of whoever came up with the term rollatini. Well, our favorite pal, Sarah, and her significant other, Rachel, are actual beekeepers. So they might That's be right. and, she, and she designed our logo so yeah, Rachel are, could help us out. Yeah, Rachel and Sarah could get us some bees. Now we just need to find the home of the person that named the term Rolatini and have a surreptitious way of releasing bees into the home. Also, I feel like because this is legit terrorism, I'm not sure Sarah and Rachel will want to be involved because they're kind of virtuous people. Oh, they're too lovely for that. But maybe they'd loan us to them and we could like make them all mean and get them to attack people. I have a better idea. Let's lie. Let's tell them that uh, we don't (laughs) want the bees for this. Let's tell them that we want the bees to start our own beekeeping operation. And then later on, when it, when the news we're donating out, this beehive to an orphanage, and right, um, the exactly. kids need honey for their porridge and gruel. And let's just hope that they don't listen to the podcast, and we'll get some of their bees, and we'll then we will release bees into the home of whoever came up with Rollatini. And <laughs> attack bees. Okay, so I mean, all bees are attack bees, really. If you piss them off, like <laughs> it's, that's true. <laughs> you just gotta but, get them good and mad. This has taken us to another part of Italian-American cuisine that I'm bothered by. And uh, the, the Rolatini, where they took, they took an eggplant, and then they're like, no, nah, let's replace it with chicken. That's my other thing. The ubiquity of chicken breast in Italian-American cuisine. Because Italian, Italian-Americans are not necessarily doing this. It's corporate Italian-American cuisine that yes. bugs me. Because chicken breast is, of course, it's like the hollow notes of proteins. It's like... The most ubiquitous, boring, pointless protein there is. And uh, <laughs> it's also super cheap. And everybody kind of likes it, but nobody really likes it. Nobody's like, oh my God, I got to have a chicken breast or I'll die. They're just like... Chicken breast sucks. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like drywall with salt. So the idea was they took an eggplant in Voltini and they replaced the eggplant with chicken. Why would you do that? Like, or another great example is eggplant parmesan. Eggplant parmesan is a great dish. And then when the first Italian-Americans started doing it in America, they had all this meat, like when Nate was saying abundance, they came up with veal parmesan. And veal parmesan, while very American, is still really good. If you ever go to Rayo's in New York or Vegas, get the veal parm. It's the size of a dinner plate. It's excellent. But then veal is, you know, a little expensive. So all of a sudden, all over America, it was chicken parm. And now people think of chicken parm as Italian food. They don't even say chicken parmigiano. They just say chicken parm. And what chicken parm means is fried chicken with pizza sauce and pizza cheese on it. And you're lucky to get Parmesan. You would be astonished to have some real Parmesan on there. Right. They don't. That's a whole nother crime in itself. I think it needs to go away. Like calling things Parmesan are wrong, wrong, wrong. Like, I don't know how champagne pulled this off. I don't know how the French government pulled this off, like outlawing the word champagne around the world, but somehow they managed to like have it not be allowed to call something champagne. Like Parmesan needs to do the same thing. Like calling some of this crap Parm is just an outrage. Well, I think that the way they did it was that they, the word Parmesan 
is used instead of Parmigiano. Yeah, still, man. Because Parmigiano is a name-controlled cheese, maybe one of the best in the world, definitely one of the best in the world, maybe the best in the world. Uh, Whereas Parmesan is salty crap. Like, there are a couple of decent American-made parms. There's some decent ones, sure, but like even that I feel dirty calling parm, no, even they, though I do, but just because it's just ingrained in us. It's the vernacular. I mean, like, how many different parms did you have in your life before it you... It is. How many, how many different parms did you have in your life before you had real Parmigiano? I don't know. Probably Kraft, I'm sure, my mother bought. I'm sure, like, there's all kinds of other stuff, or but... Pa- Polio or Belgioso, although you're... Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, yeah. You're part Italian, so your mom might have brought home the real stuff at some point. I never saw the real well, stuff. Well, we always, we always sprung for the real Romano, Pecorino, Romano. Like, that's... We're more yeah. Southern family. Yeah, well, Sicily, So we get... Yeah, that we makes always sense. sprung for the, the real roman and southern italian you know and the pecorino. thing is fake ass pecorino isn't as big a problem as fake ass parmesan right because cheap milk is funkier and you can carry those flavors easier parm right. is a subtlety it takes the aging and the caves and, and just the, the right is, milk and salt there are other great i mean you can get grana panano which is a similar cheese to parmigiano and it's great it's great. It's just mm-hmm. not as great. But all this fake parm. Speaking of parm, this takes us to the next thing, the grading of cheese over everything. Uh, because you were you were saying that is something that enraged you. Why don't you elaborate, Nate Dog? <laughs> it's just an it's just another crutch, you know? It's like, oh, this needs cheese, this needs cheese to make it good. Or it's just mindless, it's just thoughtless. What why don't you tell us about the calamari at Emeralds? i don't know what i was doing there i think it was in a hotel restaurant and i was hungry and i got some calamari and everything had cheese on it and i wanted no calamari with no cheese on it and they just thought i was an alien they just (laughs) were not having i mean like they were ready to put me on an fbi watch list there are so many italians that will rail against cheese on fish but if you get a frito misto in an American restaurant, it usually has cheese grated over the whole thing. It's like, why? Just use salt, you jack bag. There's so many better things to put on it than cheese. And it's just another crutch. It's so mindless. It's just cheese, 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 cheese. You know what? It you needs what, to have a purpose. You know what pisses Oh, my God. You know what pisses me off, and I'm sure it's going to piss you off? At Wolfgang Pucks. There were some things at Wolfgang Pucks that were okay, but this isn't one of them. Every time a pasta got delivered, every server had a Parmesan grater in their apron with a block of parm in it. It wasn't parm, it was grana padano, let's be real. But um, they had a block of, like one of those, one of those like sort of wedge-shaped graters with the, the rotary grater, the drum grater with the crank, like white plastic with a, with a metal drum. And they'd pull mm-hmm. that, after they'd drop a pasta, they'd just pull it out of their pocket. They, like the server aprons had a special pocket for this. And they were like, can I offer, can I offer a grated Parmigiano? Like, or can I offer grated Grana Padano? And I'll tell you what, if I'm going to serve a pasta that needs grated cheese on it, I'm going to grate the cheese on it before I send it out. Cheese is not elective in my world. The dish either has it or it doesn't. It's like the pepper mill with the salads. The thing is seasoned the way the chef says it's seasoned. If you're offering me elective condiment, that's not how it works. 
there's it's there's, lazy it's mindless it's thoughtless it doesn't add another step of service it doesn't make it a nicer dish it means you give less of a shit exactly like i don't need my waiter offering another condiment if the chef wanted it on there he would have put it on there if yeah. the chef wanted the waiter it on- didn't cook your food the waiter didn't taste it the waiter didn't work all day on it they don't know if the chef didn't want it on there then I don't want it. And if the chef did want it on there and didn't put it on there, then he's a crap chef. Mic drop. Yep. Even and even at places where there's just a kitchen manager or something like that, like it's still pointless. It's pointless. Put it on or don't put it on. Ah. See, I, I knew that this would wind <laughs> Nate right up. I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll talk about grating Parmesan table side. And they don't get And you know there. what else? You and know that's those exactly little how that went down. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> oh, you know those graders you were talking about? Those hand yeah. crank things? Throw those in the goddamn garbage. They're trash. I hate those things. I I hid our my wife has one and I hid it on her a few years ago. And the other day she was looking for it. And I thought, I don't know where it is. it's a good I can't oh. throw it out because that would be treason. It's but a good thing our still listen to the podcast. <laughs> but listen, you know what? My my boy JD, aka Rabbit, he came up with a really good use for those things. The only good use I've ever seen is to put nuts in it and grate oh. it, and you get like the snow from nuts. Like, oh, we used to grate so many hazelnuts and pistachios, and he thought of the great idea to put it in there, and it works awesome. Sometimes a bad tool has a good use. Yeah, sometimes. That's a great example. That's a great example. That'd be a good. That'd be a good podcast if we could think of enough of them. It's tools, tools that are used off label. Well, I have I have another culinary sin perpetrated in the name of Italian American cuisine that I would like to discuss, and that is, um, I'm just going to say one word, and you're going to wince, and then you're going to say something angry. Are you ready? Okay. Alfredo. <laughs> <laughs> what does word association nate word association alfredo um alfredo i associate with uh confusion i don't know <laughs> <laughs> That's good. alfredo is one of the great shames of yes. uh of italian american cuisine uh and the the story is interesting first off in, in italy you got cacio e pepe uh, which is pasta with cheese and pepper. Uh, we covered this in episode either two or three, I think episode three of the podcast, if you want to go back and hear how to make cacio e pepe. Uh, but it's just cheese, butter, pasta water, and pepper. If you take away the pepper, it becomes uh, pasta al burro parmigiano, maybe, something like that, or pasta al burro formaggio, like pasta with butter and cheese. Yeah. No heavy cream, no mozzarella, no Swiss cheese, all things I've seen put in Alfredo sauce in the States. Mm-hmm. It's just, you just make a pasta and you toss it with butter and cheese. Now it's a very mild, very pleasing dish. There's nothing wrong with it. It's maybe a little one dimensional, but as long as you have like a nice artichoke salad and a plate of charcuterie before it, you're golden. It's a great dish. But um, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a place called Alfredo's in Rome that was popular in the 1920s. And uh, the American movie star Mary Pickford was uh, a fan of the restaurant and she liked the dish. So she just thought of it as the pasta they have at Alfredo's. And then she went back to California and told local restaurants that to make it. And she was a tastemaker. So they did. They were like, okay, 
this movie star wants this, you know, I mean, early, one of the earliest movie stars, she wants pasta with butter and cheese. We'll do it. And she said, it's pasta like Alfredo's. So pasta Alfredo was born. And even then that doesn't bug me that much. It was, yeah, it was an American latching onto the least challenging dish on a foreign menu, which is pretty much what Americans do, unless those Americans happen to be chefs. But, uh, mm-hmm. it, but somewhere along the way, it became a cream sauce. And now it's like you get these five cheese Alfredos where people are like, we take Gruyere, mozzarella, Asiago, Parmigiano, and Pecorino, stir them into some cream with a little black pepper. You get this like goopy, heavy cream sauce. I've never seen a pasta that needed heavy cream. Like you don't need it in your uh, carbonara. You don't need it in your Alfredo. You don't need it in your cacio e pepe. Like heavy cream is good for a lot of things, but pasta doesn't need it. Like if pasta is made properly, then you can maintain an emulsion with just the butter and the pasta water. And if you want to get cheese in there, you can do that too. The, the cream is a horrible crutch. And so, but now, now we have things that aren't even pasta Alfredo. Now we have like chicken and shrimp Alfredo. Once again, Olive Garden, I'm looking at you, you progenitors of all things evil, you debasers of Italian American cuisine, you giant gaping maw of vomitous lies that's us <laughs> so yeah, yeah i mean it really is taking on its own life like i don't agree entirely like pasta doesn't always need cream like sometimes it could but the two together like doesn't always make sense like there are instances like i feel like there are exceptions to that rule actually but yeah the, I, I just the ubiquitousness of it and like the abundance of it and just the diarrhea of cheese everywhere and these blends and thinking you're fancy with using fi- oh god just Actually, come on you're I'm not gonna, you're just you're just lazy you you you've you've called me out and fair enough i'm going to fact check myself <laughs> in real time i remember a pasta dish that you did it didn't have cream but it had creme fraiche it was uh linguine with creme fraiche chili and lime with snails that was a really nice oh, pasta yeah. That was a really nice yeah. pasta. So I mean, it can, not, it can be nice. But... I'm, not, I'm not saying pasta can't have heavy cream. What I'm saying is traditional right. Italian pastas don't usually no, have it. That is don't very have untraditional. It. So I guess yes. what, I, what, I, what, I, what I should have said was, because really, I don't, I, don't, I don't like putting limits on cuisine. Nate's right. What I should have said was, I don't know of any traditional Italian pasta that needs cream. If you're making right. a traditional Italian pasta with cream, you've lost don't your way. Because they, like... If you want to make a pasta that has a cream sauce, by all means, do it. Blow my mind. I mean, Nate last week tasked me with making a, a new food with Cheetos. So obviously, I'm not an ingredient snob. But traditional pasta, if you see cream, if you see cream in a carbonara, if you see cream in a... Yes. If you see cream in a cacio e pepe, even, honestly, one of the pastas that's made with cream a lot of the time but didn't traditionally have it is primavera, that Italian-American, mm. that Italian-American dish. Yes, that's it's unknown. I agree. It's very non-traditional. It does have its place, like I think, but like Italian, like so, Italian pasta dishes are generally bare knuckle, like we talked about back in other episodes. It's just bare bones, specifically very elemental. Check them out. Yeah, very elemental, but where it gets lost on like a lot of a lot of Italian Americans and a lot of like younger chefs is. You got to know it's about the pasta, not the sauce. And if you're yes. going to use heavy, rich ingredients like that, you need to be so subtle and so nuanced and you need very balance and you got to have a lot of restraint. And like it reminds me of a quote that uh, 
I read, I believe it was Daniel Belode. He said, the most important thing that you do to a dish is what you don't do. It's yes. almost always the case. And then that's where a lot of it gets lost over the ocean between America and Europe is the restraint because there's so much here. There's so much abundance. It's just so easy to glug in heavy cream because it's delicious. I get yeah. it. I mean, but, Mar Mario Batelli called it addition by subtraction. Yes, exactly. And, and then what it all comes down to for me, whatever I cook, unless I'm deliberately trying to take it over the top, which is a valid choice. Sometimes yeah. you, can, you can be over the top. Like, I mean, I, I work for Grant Ackett's. I'm all about over the top. But when I'm, when I'm cooking and I'm not trying to do that, I remember the Coco Chanel principle. Coco Chanel, mm -hmm. the fashion designer. Yep. She said, oh, before, yeah, I, before, I, know, I know this. Before you go to a party, look in the mirror and take one thing off. Uh, it's, uh, that's Batali's thing. Batali's thing was look at a plate and look at anything you can remove without hurting the dish. And if you can, you should. And the mm -hmm. thing is Batali's cuisine is pretty minimalist. It's rich, but it's, I know he's persona non grata these days, but the guy is one of the, the guy rare, can cook. the guy's one of the rare celebrity chefs. That's actually a culinary mind. I mean, I could count those yeah, guys on one hand. Cook. As far as the Food Network guys, there mm -hmm. are very few that are culinarily important. Vitaly is culinarily important because Vitaly mm -hmm. was the guy that brought actual Italian cuisine uh, to the masses in, in the U.S. Yes, there were other restaurants that were doing it, but he was the one that went on TV and talked about it. And before exactly. him, nobody was talking about real Italian food. Yeah. So, uh, so I just want to mention one thing too. Like, if you're looking for a shining example about the differences, like Vitaly is a great example, but. If you're a culinary minded person, which I assume you are because you're listening to this drivel, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you want a really good example of the differences between Italian American and like uh, Italian cuisine, you have to watch possibly the greatest food movie in the universe, Big Night. Big Night. Big is the greatest and it is all about this. It really, really shines a light on this. <laughs> the moment where the chef's like, they aren't the risotto. They want a side of pasta. Why would you put a side of pasta with risotto? It starts with starch. His frustration is real. Uh -huh. Maybe I make a you, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a hot dog? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, they were so staunch on the tradition and... It's a and good then cast the place too. down the road was just killing it because they just Americanized it. It's well, the place down the road is the inspiration for Jimmy Pesto's on Bob's Burgers. I mean, but the movie had a good <laughs> cast. It was Kelly Tucci and Tony Shalhoub, I think. Yep. Allison yep. was in there. Like, it's a good movie. There was it's actually a great movie. It an, might be my favorite food movie. There's an Italian restaurant in the gay neighborhood in Chicago where I used to live that was legendary. I never did the manhole. This. No, it wasn't the manhole. That wasn't an Italian restaurant. That was a meat market. No, it was this uh, this little Italian <laughs> restaurant in the gay neighborhood I used to live in. And uh, they would do the, every every year, the, the theater down the street would do a showing of the big night. And then the, the this Italian restaurant would do the meal from the big night after the movie. And so people would just caravan down the road and fill this restaurant up and they'd do that party. And I never went. It was like this. It was like the stuff of like, I want to do this now. Like for any, like I'll fill my house. I think I, I probably can fit 25 people in this place if I really, really try. I want to do that for like 25 of my friends. Just do like a showing. We of did it at the Woodlands, remember? We did a big night dinner. I wasn't there, there for, that? for that. No, that was before my time. That was so oh, fun. Big night. Yeah. I, think I made a giant timpano. <laughs> did it work? 
Yeah, it was awesome. That's awesome. Oh, man. Yeah, we should do a big night dinner. We should just definitely make this happen. I made the penne and everything, man. Oh, you made the penne? Yeah, it was nuts, dude. Ladies and gentlemen, hot dogs and caviar is temporarily suspended as uh, mental health uh, officials have been dispatched to Nate Whiting's house to uh, lock him up for a lunatic. Because doing a timpano, a gigantic pasta mold with hand-rolled penne, that's an act of lunacy. <laughs> it was lunacy. <laughs> did you end it uh, half, halfway through the project? Did you regret starting it? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, had to finish, though. Everyone was like, you got it. You got it. You're egging me on, you know, asking me real nice. So I didn't want to <laughs> let him down. <laughs> All right. Well, we are, we are running low on time. Uh, so All I right. think we're going to have to curtail this discussion of Italian-American uh, cuisine here. But the reason we got into this today is that we plan on spending a few episodes going forward talking about Italian-American cuisine because it's very important to us. Uh, check out my review of John Mariani's Italian-American cuisine, hotdogsandcaviar.blogspot.com. What got us thinking about this idea for an episode is that a blog reader, uh, that's right, we have blog readers, not as many as we have podcast listeners. So since we only have 39 podcast listeners, it's probably like, I don't know what, a half dozen blog readers, but like of our loyal readers, this woman, Dina DeMaio, uh, sent us a copy of a book that she wrote on Italian American culture and cuisine. And I'm about to start reading that. So I, I wanted to come on after I finished reading it and talk about what I learned with, you know, Mr. Italian American over here. Uh, I think his name is Rocky Balboa, something like that. <laughs> I'm going to teach I, you how to make your favorite pasta shape, Traxutini. Traxutini. I already know how to make it. It's <laughs> Tracks and TD heard. Uh, but <laughs> uh, remember when we were talking about that with Caitlin and she didn't get it? She's like, wait, what's Tracks and TD? Jesse's an asshole. <laughs> that is what you said, isn't it? <laughs> I'm pretty sure, yeah. But we wanted we wanted to have a discussion of Italian American cuisine before I went through this book. So that we can sort of, you know, just get where where our heads are at, uh, and then that way, when we go into this book, we'll already have this as context. So, you and your dead-on stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and have Speakeasy play us out of here, but uh, we are going to be back and talking about Italian cuisine, Italian American cuisine, more often. Uh, we've got a, an upcoming podcast on pizza that we're going to do. And then we've got, uh, eventually we're going to do our discussion of Dina DeMaio's book. And, uh, so special thanks to her for sending us that. And we are going to get just ankle deep in some serious discussion of Italian American cuisine, which in my opinion is one of the absolute greatest offshoots of traditional American cuisine. Couldn't agree more, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Talk to y'all later. Keep your head up, come on, little baby. I keep your head up, come on, I come on, come on, little baby. My little darling, my little sister. Come on, baby, just keep your head up.